God's Word of Luke in Luke chapter 11 and 5 through 13. I'll actually read 1 through 13 so we can have the whole context. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Well, probably many of you have seen Beauty and the Beast, and at least in the Disney version. You know it starts with Maurice going out on a journey, but on the way back he gets lost. And the farther he goes, the more strange the surroundings appear. And the day is getting longer, and it's getting darker, and then finally he is attacked by wolves and he and his horse take off in flight to escape and they frantically stumble upon a massive but cold and dreary looking castle maurice nervously enters in only to be welcomed and made a guest by all the servants he can't believe this wonderful care they're giving him until the beast comes and in rage throws him into his jail How dare you come to my castle? How dare you trespass? And the beast doesn't care at all. Maurice is pleased for mercy, saying, Look, I wasn't trying to do anything wrong. Don't matter at all. The beast is cold, mean, unwilling to listen. You may know bosses, directors, coaches, officers, parents, friends like that. No, they may not be as cruel as the beast, hopefully, but... They don't really seem to care. No matter what you say, doesn't tend to influence or change them to listen. This morning, we're facing the question, does God really listen and care? Or is He cold? Is He mean? Is He unwilling to listen? Do our cries for help fall on uncaring ears? Now, I think for probably many, that's a softball question. It's a question that's so obvious, why would we even consider it? Of course God cares. Why do we don't even need to ask such a question? But is it really so obvious? If you look at other religions or other gods, it's not what you would expect. If you go in nature and observe it, you would think there's nothing out there that is kind and listening. And we may want to think, yes, God cares, he listens. But 
Just because we want to think something is true does not make it true. I want to think that my body is like my 21-year-old body. But after a minimal amount of work, my back starts to ache. After a very short sprint, I'm <gasps> gasping for air. When at age 21, I could have run a lot longer. Just because I want to think this is the way I am doesn't make me that way. And just because I think, oh, God's like this doesn't make God like that. How do we know God really listens and cares? Well, we know because he's told us. And that's what we're going to see in these verses as we finish Jesus' instructions on prayer. You know, he shows us God's not just some remote, all-powerful deity. He is our Father through Jesus Christ. And he gave us, last week we saw, two types of requests. First set was about God's glory. So we begin, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. But God isn't just concerned for his glory. He also is concerned for our good. So he says, pray for your daily bread, for the forgiveness you need, for the need to not be given into temptation. And now Jesus is going to continue to instruct them and us, look, come boldly, come persistently in prayer. Rather than the beast or someone who doesn't really care, all they want is to punish, God has become our Father through Christ, and He wants to do us good so we can confidently and regularly come before Him. As we look at this, is these verses, we'll see four things, and I got these from John MacArthur to give credit where credit is due. First, the parable in verses 5 through 8. Then the promise in verses 9 through 10. The principle in verses 11 and 12. And then the premise in verse 13. But first, the parable. So Jesus tells this story because he's trying to get them to see they can boldly come persistently to God in prayer. And he tells of this man who has a friend who shows up at his house at midnight and he needs bread. Now immediately this story needs to be understood for the cultural differences there is from our society. First, they had no grocery store. They had no corner store. There's nowhere he could just run and buy something quick. Couldn't order a pizza. Along with that, any food that had to be eaten had to be made from scratch. So to make food is going to take a long time because it's going to have to heat up the stove. They're going to have to make the batter or the dough, whatever they're going to make. And then they're going to have to cook it. Along with this, we would often think of someone showing up in the middle of the night without warning us. Well, they're very rude. Yet the exact opposite was in their culture. They didn't have many inns and hotels, and the ones they had were not of good repute. And so it was expected of hosts that no matter when someone showed up, you should give them food and lodging. They put the onus on the host, not the person showing up. And it's not like they could have let them know anyways. They couldn't text on the way in, I'll be there in 30 minutes. There was no mass mailing system. So people would show up, relatives, and they were expected to host them. So when Jesus tells of this man coming at midnight and that there's no bread, this is a serious issue for their day. You know, the man is stuck between, as we would say, a rock and a hard place. He can either be rude and not show any hospitality, or he can be rude and go ask a friend to help him out by giving him some bread. And Jesus asked them, what would you do? And I'm sure many of them were wondering, what would I do? I wouldn't want to be rude and inhospitable, but I know what I would think if someone came 
at midnight saying, hey, can you give me some food? And so this man, he does go and he gets the answer of no. But before we look at that, we have to realize this man would have realized this. It's not like he's going to knock on the door and go, oh, you didn't want to wake up at midnight? I didn't know that. He knows that his request is bold. He knows that it's even impertinent. But he doesn't want to be rude socially. So he goes and he knocks. And the man replies for two reasons, saying he can't do it. First, look, we've already barred the door. This door would have been very heavy, had metal, potentially hinges and locks, and it would have been very loud to open. Second, they normally slept in one big area, often one mat. So to get up and move in the middle of the night might cause kicking or stumbling over children and causing them to awake. And as any parent knows, you don't want to wake up the children in the middle of the night because once they're awake, they may not go back to sleep. And yet, what does Jesus say? Because of the man's impudence. Not because he's a friend. He'll rise and give him whatever he needs. Because he boldly persists in asking, he will give it to him. You know, it's not because of his friendship, but because of his bold persistence, his friend acts. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, what are we supposed to draw from this? Are we supposed to think, well, God is really an unwilling sleeping house owner. He doesn't really want to help you, but if you, if you just keep knocking, he'll finally say, all right, all right, if you'll just leave me alone, I'll give you whatever you want. Is that what... Jesus is teaching us? No, he's actually teaching us the opposite. Daryl Bach, one commentator, explains it very well. He writes, God is not to be compared to the neighbor and his irritation, but contrasted to him. And we'll see this. Verses 11, sorry, verses 9 through 13 shows God to be gracious in granting requests for aid and provision. The point of the parable, I'm reading Bach here still, is that if an irritated person responds to boldness, so you can be bold with the gracious one. It's a contrast, not a comparison. God is never irritated. He's never bothered in the middle of the night. And so this story should cause us to realize, though you might need, with a friend, with a boss, with an officer, to be bold, to keep being persistent, to wear them down, to get them to do what you want, You never have to do that with God. He is your loving Father, so come ask freely. God is not withholding good from you because it inconveniences Him. His love and desire to bless us far surpass any human compassion that we know. And unlike us, He's never hampered. There's no inconvenient time. There's never a lack of resources. He's never slumbering or sleeping or as Elijah says, off on vacation. He never asked to put you on hold. Say, can I call you back in a minute? You know, every second of every day, he eagerly wants us to boldly come. And we see that very specifically by what Jesus says next in verses 9 through 10, because he gives us a promise. Verse 9, again it says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And each one of those verbs are present imperatives. They imply that you're to keep doing this. So, for example, the first one is ask and keep asking and it will be given to you. It's the idea of prayer, coming to God. Keep asking and he'll give it to you. Seek 
and keep seeking, you'll find. You know, here it's taking up the step of intensity. You know, just asking, now you're seeking out. We're not just calling on Him, we're seeking Him. In Deuteronomy 4, God warns Israel that you're going to come into the promised land, but then you're going to be tempted by all the idols of the land. And when you fall, He says this in verse 29, If you fall and return, there seek the Lord your God and you will find Him. If you search after Him with all your heart and with all your soul. You're like the father and the prodigal son. He calls us to return and seek Him. Thus third, knock, and we could say, and keep knocking and it will be open to you. Again, there's this growing intensity. Asking is one thing, seeking another, but knocking is continuing the insistence, the boldness, the persistence. And again, the point is not that we're holding God down till he's, and we're saying, say uncle, say uncle, hoping that God will finally, okay, you wrestled some goodness out of me. Rather, God is calling us to pray to him like this. You made me think of the story of Jacob before he was called Israel, wrestling with God in prayer. And you might take from that story, well, look, Jacob had to wrestle blessings from God. But why was Jacob able to wrestle with God in the first place? Because God came down. Why was Jacob able to continue to wrestle with God? Because God stayed. Any second God could have left, any second God could have easily overcome him. But God wanted to bless Jacob, and he wanted to bless us, and he wants to bless us. And so he calls us to wrestle with him. And we'll talk more about why in a minute. But here, I think, at least to me, this was a reminder that prayer really does matter. That God really does answer prayers. Some of you might be expert fishermen. You know the right type of hook, the right line, the right bait. You know the place to cast. You know the jiggle to make on the line. You know the tug to set the hook. Then there's me. I'm told that fish live in water. I've actually seen people pull them out of the water. However, if all it was was my own experience of pulling out, all that I would think exists in water is lots of moss, old tires, and other things to catch a hook on. And yet, the fact that people go and pull fish out of the water shows that they are there. Now, this is a little bit of a contrast because in prayer... It's not your abilities, but it's God's willingness that causes him to hear and answer. You don't need to be an expert prayer that you say the right formulas, that you get in the right posture, that you come at the right time, that your body's angled in the right direction. God says, come, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and I will answer. This is letting us know that prayer matters. And so persist because God wants to answer. Now, as we read these verses, I'm sure in your mind, you're immediately going, whoa, hold on. That doesn't really mean what it's saying. That, we hold on, he's got to qualify that because that's just, whoa, whoa, that's a little too, too crazy to believe. And there are really two errors people make from this, two errors. The first is to think that Daddy Warbucks just pulled out his credit card handed it to you and said, well, go on out on the town, get whatever you want. And yet, clearly, there's a context to these words. Right before these words were Jesus talking, saying, look, pray in this way. 
Pray for God's glory. Pray for your needs. So he's not now saying, well, now just go out and let me give you a materialistic spending spree. As well, Jesus' words in Luke 22 really are tied to this. When Jesus prays, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, this is not just a pastor coming and trying to clean up Jesus' words because, boy, those aren't true. Your Jesus' own brother, as Keith read for us earlier, James 4 says, you do not have because you do not ask. Oh, look, we don't have it because we don't ask. But then he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. God delights to give as a good father. And a good father never gives things that are going to make his children selfish. God is not going to give us all our materialistic desires because that would not be a good father to give us all of those requests. And we even see throughout the Bible God not answering some prayers. Paul prayed three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed, whatever that might be. But God in his fatherly kindness told him no. Well, how can that be fatherly kindness? Because Paul then goes on to say that because he didn't receive that, it made him lean on God. You just think about what it would imply if God did answer every single request you made. Well, God would just be a vending machine. And it would actually put us in a very scary situation. Because I'll speak for myself. There have been several times in my life when I thought, I really want this. This is going to be good for me. God doesn't give it to me. And then a while later, I look back and go, thank you, God, for not giving me what I wanted. If I had gotten what I wanted, it would have been worse for me. It was better that you didn't give me what I thought was best. God is not our butler just giving us all we want. He's our good father who gives us what we need. And it's much better to leave our life in his hands. Along with that, God often answers our greater request by denying our lesser ones. Let me explain what I mean. Recently, I read Chuck Colson's autobiography, Born Again. If you're not familiar with Chuck Colson, he served President Nixon, and he was known as a cruel, vindictive, and self-serving man. He was known as Nixon's hatchet man for getting things done. However, in the midst of the Watergate scandal, as everything was swirling around, all the chaos, he came to faith in Christ. And as he was coming closer to his sentencing, he, his wife, and his Christian friends were praying, God, would you not give chuck a long prison sentence may you even just give him probation however he was given the longest sentence of any man to that point in the watergate scandal so did god answer their prayers well yes and no we could clearly say no because they didn't get the shorter prison sentence that they wanted but we can also say yes because all along they're praying god would you be glorified through this situation, through all the wrong that I've done and all the coming forward and being honest, would you be honored? Because what if the prayer for a shorter sentence had been answered? Well, then Colson would not have been in prison so long and not have seen the horrible conditions and treatment of prisoners. He would not have undergone and seen all the emotional, psychological, and spiritual needs in prison. And he would not relate as well. Because Colson himself writes, I found myself increasingly drawn to the idea that God had put me in prison for a purpose and that I should do something for those I had left behind. 
you may know or you may not know, there's a ministry called Prison Fellowship, the largest such Christian ministry to prisons, and it faithfully still preaches the good news of Jesus Christ to prisoners, former prisoners, and their families, all because God answered Chuck Colson's prayer. Not the short prayer of lower my sins, but the overarching prayer that God, I want all of my life to honor you. Would you honor your name in my life? And so God knew, well, since you want that, Chuck, I'm going to give you a longer sentence. God answered his prayers, and thus we should ask, and it will be given to you. We should seek, and we'll find. We should knock, and the door will be opened. But I said there's two errors, and the other error is really for people like us who are quick to say, whoa, whoa, that doesn't really mean what it says. Because it really does mean what it says. God is answering prayers. Yes, it's not a blank check for materialistic desires, but it is a promise that God will answer our prayers. And we often have a hard time believing this. This ironically and humorously gets played out in the book of Acts. King Herod arrests Peter, the apostle, and as he's in prison, the disciples gather to pray. And they're praying, Lord, would you deliver Peter? And as they're praying, an angel of the Lord goes to the prison. And he leads Peter out. And he brings Peter to the gate. And Peter starts knocking on the gate to the house. And a servant girl, Rhoda, comes out. And it says in Acts 12, verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice and a joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Well, there's really no explanation for their amazement, except that they really just didn't think God was going to answer the prayer. And we can often be like that. We wonder, is God really doing anything? A few years ago, I had a dear friend who was making a life choice that I thought was going to, in many ways, ruin their life. And I prayed and prayed and said, God, would you cause them to see the error of their ways? We talked to them. Would you help them to listen to our words and do something else? And we talked to them and prayed and nothing seemed to happen. So finally, I remember just thinking, why am I even praying? Nothing is going to happen. They're going to make this choice and then we're going to have to walk through the consequences with them. Well, a few weeks later, they contacted us and said they had changed their mind and they were not going to make that choice. Now, the point of that story is not, okay, this is how you manipulate God. What you do is you pretend that he's not going to answer your prayer and then you got him because they'll want to make sure that you know he really answers his prayers. That's not the point at all. The point is just to reveal how we, in Acts 12-like fashion, can really think, this isn't doing anything. God is not listening to us. And yet, God hears our prayers. The fact that he doesn't answer in exactly the way that we think he should, or in the exact time that we think he should, doesn't mean he isn't listening. And often we confuse what we think is best with whether he is hearing and answering. God hears, he answers. Don't confuse our understandings for how he should act for whether he is acting at all. And so, God does move. He does act, and he answers our prayers. 
And we can know this because Jesus gives us a principle that's built on a premise. But let's first look at the principle, verses 11 and 12. There, Jesus says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Is the men are addressed, addressed directly, saying, Fathers, and all the fathers think. And he gives them these illustrations. They think, No, I would never do that. When their child asks them for a basic necessity of life, bread and egg, they're not going to give them something damaging in return. They're not going to say, Dad, will you make me a peanut butter and jelly? And they come back with bleach soup in response. Oh, here you go. Eat this up. No father would do that. And Jesus is drawing this principle. Now notice what Jesus has done. He began instructing us on how we can boldly persist in prayer by talking about friends. But he's actually better than the friends. And now he's talking about fathers. And yet he's going to show that he's better than any father. He's building up this principle to help them realize, look, imagine the best relationships you have. God is even better than that. In other words, <coughs> we don't have to come cautiously to God, wondering if, like Greek mythology, He's going to zap us with lightning. We don't need to butter Him up with all kinds of good deeds. Well, I really need this, so I better start reading my Bible. Better start praying, going to church. I really need this one, so I better kind of warm up God to wanting to hear what I'm doing. We come to Him knowing that our Father gives good things to His children. We come to Him knowing that our requests aren't going to get caught up in bureaucratic red tape. We're not going to be at the end of a long line waiting for others, hoping that that money, those resources, haven't already been allocated. We come eagerly and boldly knowing He delights to hear. And that He's not going to say, well, where have you been? Haven't seen you around here lately. Glad you're back. No, he delights for us to come. He's eager for us to return. You know, prayer is really this mystery because God knows the end from the beginning. And he will accomplish all his will. It's a mystery because God tells us, Numbers 23, 19, that he's not a man. He's not a son of man that he's going to lie or change his mind. Thus, since prayer is not informing God of anything or changing His mind, why do we even pray? Well, there's many reasons we could give, but let me give two. First, because God has ordained not only what will happen, but also how it will happen. Or to say it in a more simpler way, God has determined that He'll bring about His plans through us. Thus, prayer matters, because God has determined it will. You know, God's control of all things is never used in the Bible to say, so thus what you do doesn't matter. We see this played out explicitly in Philippians chapter 1. There, Paul is relating how he's in prison, and he's talking about how he'll be delivered. And he says in Philippians 1.19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out to my deliverance. He doesn't just say, well, I'll be delivered because God's going to do it. He says, I'll be delivered through your prayers. Their prayers were the means that God used for Paul to be released. Second, we pray because God is not just this force. God is not just this power or aura. God is a personal being and he wants to relate to us. 
W. Bingham Hunter writes, Most of us tend to view getting answers as the goal and prayer as the means to that end. But God views it differently. God wants to commune with us. He actually enjoys having us speak with Him. God may ask you to wait for answer to prayer, not because, not only because He loves you and knows what is best, but also He actually likes you as an individual and personally enjoys you talking to Him. God is not just this all-powerful being who is up there and He might listen because that's what He has to do. He wants to listen. He wants to hear you talk. And so He wants us to pray. And so we should want to pray. And this really gets played out last in the last thing here in verse 13, the premise. You know, a premise is a foundational thought or belief or assumption of an argument. And Jesus really gives too. So we could say the premises, if you like. And he lays it out in verse 13. He says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The premise is that God is a good Father. And since God is a good Father, He's going to give us good things through prayer. You know, we're evil parents, so how much more will a perfect Father do what is best? And so the first premise is that we're evil. That we're bent on selfish desires, but we still give good gifts to our children. You know, often this gets misunderstood when we as Christians say people are evil. People think that we're saying, well, people only do evil deeds or everything they do is corrupt. Well, on a horizontal level, Jesus is saying here that's not true because even evil parents do good things for their children. It's not that they don't do good things horizontally. And yet, this poses a question. If we're evil people, how can God bless us? Because he's not just our father, he's still the judge. Won't evil be punished? Shouldn't it be? And as we saw last time, we are not God's children naturally. Spiritually, we have to be born again. We have to be brought by faith in Christ who had to die for our sins so that we might be God's children. So as God's children, we have confidence that He hears. But hear these words of Proverbs 15, 29, because they say, The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayers of the righteous. You know, it's not true. God does not hear the prayer in the sense of listening and responding to it to every single human being. He responds to the prayers of His children. And that only came because Christ died for that privilege it was a costly gift that we might come in prayer and as we know the god that would give his own son for us how will he not also in him graciously give us all things but the second premise is look god is not evil he's a good father and so how much more you could look out and see fathers give good things to their children how much more will an eternally perfect father give good things he doesn't have mixed motives he never gets cranky he is the perfect father from whom all blessings flow thus jesus says that the heavenly father will give the holy spirit to those who ask and you may be thinking well wait just a second that's not what i was asking for and yet this really ties back to 
God wants us to relate to Him. God gives us the best thing. He gives us Himself. Your John MacArthur says this better than I ever could. He says, To those who ask for a gift, He gives the giver. To those who ask for an effect, He gives the cause. To those who ask for a product, He gives the source. To those seeking comfort, He gives the comforter. To those that seeking power, He gives the source of power. To those seeking help, He gives the helper. To those seeking truth, He gives the spirit of truth. To those seeking love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, He gives the producer of all those things. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the source of every good thing in the Christian life. God, our perfect Heavenly Father, wants to give us good things, so He gives us the source of all those good things, the Holy Spirit Himself. God gives us Himself. What better gift could He give? There is nothing else. And so Jesus is showing us again and again, look, come to me in prayer. Know me as Father. Know me that I'm not just a power, not just a force. I am a relational Father to who you should come. God is not battling other deities for control. And maybe in my spare time and the off peace, I can help you out. God didn't just set the universe in motion with some really good laws, but he doesn't care. No, God is involved and active in this world and with his children. And he gives us good things. So really this passage is driving us to ask, how do we see God? Do you think you have to twist his arm, wring goodness out of him? Or does he desire to do good? Jesus tells us that we should see God as our Heavenly Father, who we can boldly and persistently approach. I think it's really important to see because we have a vague suspicion that God really isn't doing good for us. You've probably said or heard something like this, well, be careful what you pray for. God may give it to you. Now, at the heart of that is the good understanding that God often grows us through our sufferings. So that if we ask for patience, we're really asking that God will give us situations that are long and rough. When we ask God for compassion, we're really wanting that we're going to have to have situations that break our hearts. God's gymnasium for growth is hard. And so I think that's what people often mean. But we have to also realize implied in that is, look, if you ask God for something good, He's going to give you something really horrible in response. And that's not true. Don't be careful what you ask God for. Know that God always gives you good things. It might not be what you think is best in that moment, but He knows what is best for His children. And God answers prayers. So don't give up. Persist and boldly come. Many of you have probably heard of George Mueller. He's well known for the many orphanages he set up, caring for over 10,000 orphans. But he was also not just someone who cared for orphans, but someone who cared for his friends. And in 1844, he started praying that five of his friends would be converted. Mueller is one of those people who always makes us feel guilty about prayer, but we don't need to feel guilty. As we've seen, God is our Father, not going, well, where have you been lately? But Mueller prayed. And after 18 months, one of those friends was converted. 
Mueller thanked God and he kept praying. And four years later, another friend was converted. Mueller thanked God and he kept praying. Six years after that, a third of the five friends was converted. And he praised God and kept praying for the last two. And you know what? 52 years later when he died, the last two men still were not converted. He prayed for 52 years and they weren't converted. And then a few, a short time after that, his two friends came to faith in Christ. 52 years. Most of us, I'll speak for myself, I get worn out after a few weeks. But we have a good heavenly Father. So let's boldly persist. Come before the throne of grace knowing that the one from whom every blessing flows wants to bless his children. So let's come to him eagerly, boldly, persistently. Let's pray. Oh Lord, forgive us for our suspicions of you. Lord, may we today see you as you are, our loving Father. Lord, may we delight to pray. Not just a burden, not something we have to check off to feel good about our day spiritually. But we want to commune with you. We want to relate to such a wonderful being that would reach down, that would send his only son to die for us. Oh Lord, what a joy to know you. And so we ask, would you lavish your spirit upon us individually and as a group that we might be full of your spirit and have the best that we might have you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.